Welcome to episode 68 of the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. Today we conclude this three-part travelogue of a brief trip to India looking at some environmental portraits and some architectural silhouettes. Before we get started, if you are listening to this uh, soon after its release, uh, it may well still be Christmas, uh, either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, so Happy Christmas. If you're catching up later, I hope you had a very happy Christmas and wish you a wonderful new year. So we left off last week having looked at the pictures of the Taj Mahal. I spoke about some brief history of the place as well as some technical mistakes that I'd made during my shooting uh, due mainly to lack of sleep, which might also lead me to believe that uh, I don't uh, yet know that particular piece of equipment like the back of my hand as well. If I did, I would still uh, have been able to use it while effectively on autopilot. During the last 45 minutes or so uh, in the Taj complex, the guide went back to the gate where I'd got my first glimpse of the uh, uh, mausoleum from. Uh, That's basically the white building that everyone sort of thinks of as the centre of the Taj Mahal. It is the centre of the Taj Mahal. And, uh, you know, from that point, I should mention that... uh, I have. I think having a guide was a great uh, way to get some history of the place while wandering around. But I'd say that it's not 100% necessary if you're only going to be visiting the Taj Mahal. I'd requested a guide because my original plan was to arrive at the Taj before dawn and shoot for a few hours, and then leave the complex and go back to the hotel for breakfast and then get out and do some street photography in the area during the day and then just come back to the Taj as the sun dropped low in the sky leading up to the sunset and shoot a little more uh, during this warm light at the end of the day. Well, as I said before, the travel time over here was not two hours as I'd heard, it was uh, five hours. So I was incredibly tired just having 90 minutes or so disturbed sleep and I also now had to leave the area much earlier in the day to have time to get back to Delhi uh, to the airport before the evening flight out of India. So the guide was not as necessary as I'd originally expected. Having said that, I'll give a few details of how this guide thing works uh, for the sake of those that uh, might have a chance to go over and you know, make it out to the Taj Mahal someday. Firstly, note that the car I was riding in was booked in advance and has a driver If you want to travel by car in India, I do not recommend getting a -a rent-a-car and driving yourself. Driving in India is a skill that, although not impossible to master, which is pretty obvious because millions of Indian people are doing it every day, but it is very different to any other country that I have visited. The lane markings carry very little importance, apparently. A two-lane road will frequently be used by three or four lines of cars side by side, Uh, depending on the size of the lanes, and when travelling at any speeds outside of the cities, uh, many of the drivers just meander between the lanes as they feel fit. 
The odd cow walking towards you uh, in the opposite direction is a strange sight at first, and the trucks and cars uh, that tend to use the opposite side of the road uh, to get to their destination sometimes as well makes for a pretty unnerving experience. So basically, if you're in thick traffic, it's incredibly thick and carries the risks of uh, being bumped or bumping into someone else with every manoeuvre. And when you're travelling at decent speeds, there's a risk of being knocked off the road by someone changing lane without any thought of anyone else on the road, or being hit by a truck head-on, or cattle coming towards you in the opposite direction on your side of the road. This is really not uh, doing this experience justice, though. I actually really enjoy it in a strange kind of way. So... I don't want to put you off at all, uh, but I just want to say get a driver with your car um, just for for safety, really. Without trying to put anyone down in any way, uh, it is just uh, $100 or so a day for a car with a driver. And they're professionals, and more importantly, uh, they're Indian, which just means that they're so much used to it, more used to it. One thing to note, and this uh, information is from Indian friends, so you can trust me, um, but a generous tip for a driver that has stayed with you for a day or so would be around 500 rupees, which is about $15. Some Indian people have told me this is too much. Uh, They say that uh, it will spoil the driver and make them expect more in future. So you could go with around 300 or 400 rupees, but I myself think that 500 is, although a touch on the generous side, I think it's a nice thank you. Now, the important thing, though, uh, and I must say I've not overcome this myself yet, is to try to get a driver that speaks good English. I did not book this driver myself, um, and I don't know if this was requested, but the driver on my trip uh, this time did not speak very good English. Another thing that I will bear in mind for future trips as well, and again, I'm not confident this will be possible, but if you are not going to have a separate guide, it would be great if there was some way to find people that understand the needs of a photographer shooting in India. I'll talk a little bit more about the communication problems with the driver a little later, but moving on to the guide. The guides for the Taj Mahal don't get a wage. They used to be paid by the rent-a-car company apparently, but... Booking and payment problems caused them to decide as a group that they would no longer be booked or paid by the company itself. So now the driver calls a guide, uh, from maybe from a list of numbers that he has, usually on the way uh, over there or on the day. Uh, the, uh, apparently the guy that was our guide got a call at 4.30am, um, so it, that's pretty tough for him. But uh, you know, then what happens is the guide comes out to work with you. They don't get paid, but I went to great lengths to find out from the guide what a fair amount to pay him would be. Now, this guy's only human and is probably actually inflating the amount to an extent. He told me that people who do not enjoy the tour will pay just $15 or so, uh, which, as I said earlier, is, is 500 rupees. But people who really found the tour and the history, etc., interesting would give him uh, 25 30 or 40 dollars which is between 850 and uh, 1500 rupees 
The latter seems excessive by Indian standards, and I doubt that this is what you should pay. But if you're really happy with the service and information that you receive, uh, when you consider how much you may be earning in your own country, um, I, I think that in addition to the amount of money that you probably spent over here, which is also going to be pretty obvious to the guide, um, it, you know, it might be a good guideline to go up to, say, 1,400. This is for each member of the party, by the way. So if you're in a group, each member would pay what they feel comfortable with and not just t chip in a few rupees each to make the thousand or so. Uh, the more in the group, the harder the guide has to work too. So I think that this is only fair. Anyway, let's move on to what happened after I returned to the hotel for breakfast before parting with the guide and then I'll tell you how much I gave him. So once again, I'd eaten and checked out of the hotel. The guide uh, asked me if I wanted to see some traditional marble craftsmen inlaying semi-precious stones into the marble uh, in the same way as some that we can we saw earlier in uh, image 1185 of the archway of the front of the mausoleum at the Taj. This sounded like a great opportunity to get some environmental portraits, so I jumped at the chance. He also said that we would look at some sapphire cutting and some uh, carpet weaving workshops. All of these are trade and products uh, of the area of Agra. Uh, uh, you know, the area around here is actually famous for. First we arrived at the marble inlaying workshop and this is where I shot the first three images that we'll look at today. The first one is number 1193. Not really a favourite from the trip. I've really included it so that we can see the round plate with, you know, the mar the marble plate with the uh, engravings in that the craftsman is carving into the plate, you know, the hollows where the stones will be inlaid. This guy proudly showed me how resting his finger on the marble uh, as a fulcrum sort of thing for the carving movement uh, he's gradually wearing his finger away and the f and the fingernail is gone there as well. The problem with this image uh, and the member, long-term member BK Secret uh, actually mentioned this in a comment in the gallery. The guy is looking into thin air. I got around eight frames of this guy and some, the, you know, the one showing his finger um, is kind of the better of them all but in, in each of them he's like looking into thin air this was actually uh, to the point that I wondered if perhaps he had an eyesight problem uh, but he you know had he had some kind of a problem where he couldn't see then I'm sure that he, the people in the shop or the workshop would have made a point of how miraculous it was that he could do this job without his eyesight I had been shooting him uh, at f4 again with the 50mm f1.4 lens but I closed the aperture down a little to f5.6 for this shot as I was going to uh, focus on the finger and I wanted his face to be more in focus than f4 would have allowed. I raised the ISO to uh, 400 as I was indoors but shooting with available light. This gave me a shutter speed of 1 25th of a second. To his right was another craftsman grinding the precious stones that would be inlaid into the marble 
uh, that the first guy was carving notches into. We can get an idea of the sort of thing they're making if we look at the octagonal tabletop leaning against the wall behind the subject in image number 1194. This time I went back to F4 and focused on the subject's eyes because I wanted to capture that pensive look on his face as he ground this tiny piece of stone. I didn't think we need to have the hand clearly in focus for this shot as we get enough information without it being. And I didn't want the uh, background to be any more in focus than it is right now. It was pretty much a coincidence that the table behind the subject is like creating a kind of halo around his head. This was not intentional, uh, but I thought it was kind of cool when I looked at the shots later. Note again that as with the first two portraits we looked at in part one of this series, I uh, lowered the saturation back down to normal for these portrait shots so as not to overdo uh, the skin tones. This guy's yellow sweater also was way too loud with my normal Velvia type settings. The extra stop of aperture uh, had actually uh, more than doubled the speed for this image to 1 60th of a second at ISO 400. After this I was led through a door at the back of the workshop and this is where they tried to sell their wares. This is also where I warn you um, a, a friendly warning about this kind of place. The first thing I heard on going through this to the showroom is that there is no obligation to buy anything. I then got a nice display of how Coca-Cola will not damage this marble even if left on for 24 hours and then watched it quickly wiped off in about 24 seconds. And I don't doubt that it doesn't mark it, but it all is like a big show thing that you get um, kind of thrust upon you. It's also around this time when I was told that the tabletops could be shipped to anywhere in the world. Uh, this is where I made my first stand saying that I didn't really want a tabletop and was rebuffed um, with another explanation that uh, there's no obligation and that I was just to enjoy looking at their goods. As we went through the showroom and I was just basically saying no to everything, the size of the wares got smaller and smaller and the price got lower and lower. And they started trying to sell me, you know, things that, I don't know, uh, to start off with, things that would require a second mortgage for. And they finish up with a grumpy look on their face, uh, showing you a $200 ring case. And, you know, they apparently also have a magic ball or some kind of divining system that will accurately allow them to tell the taste of every man in the world's wife you know they, they know exactly what everybody wants so now yeah I'm being a little bit sarcastic but I'm English so it means that sarcasm is my in my blood so forgive me for that but I just want to impress on you that they will give you a very very hard sell I was getting frustrated and I told the owner of the, the establishment that he had no way of knowing what my wife was going to love um, you know and he even though he was swearing that she would uh, you know, we moved through and uh, he showed me another ring box and said that this one was even cheaper. And it was at this point that I told him that, you know, almost close to sort of snapping at him, that it was not the price that I was interested in, you know, that, that was making me not want to pay or buy something. I sim simply could not see anything that my wife would like. 
and I asked him to shut up while I looked for the re- looked at the rest of the things to see if there was anything that I wanted to buy, uh, rather than just have it thrust upon me. As I looked further, um, I actually did find something, a small box. Uh, it was very nice, but not overly or- ornamental like most of it was. And I figured that it would make a nice gift and that, uh, you know, it, it, there was a good chance that oh, my wife actually would like it. But because I was now pretty annoyed at the shop owner, I told him that I'd buy it for a price pretty much lower than the uh, one on the piece, and he went for it without hesitation. So now I was getting a little bit frustrated at not saying an even lower price, but uh, I paid the money and left the showroom. As I came out, the guy in the yellow shirt from the, the last shot had been replaced by another guy in a yellow shirt, and we can see this uh, second person in image number 1195. This guy, rather than the the first one, uh, was looking rather pensively at his work. Uh, this young guy was stared right at the camera for a number of seconds. This allowed me to get a relatively nice portrait with his big eyes staring right back at me. There was now another guy sitting behind him to the right, so I had to come around the front a little bit more, but I kind of like this like this angle too, and it accentuates the grinding wheel and the stick used to drive it as they're closer to the camera than uh, the last shot, and also uh, they're more out of focus because I was shooting at f4. I gave each of these guys uh, 20 rupees uh, just for posing for me basically. Note that in the street I would probably not do this. I find that it can be insulting to offer small payments for shots and I prefer to buy something from a person rather than uh, just giving them a a tip straight off. For example, uh, the last time I visited India I shot some young boys uh, who probably were with their dad at a banana stall and I bought some bananas from them. This sort of thing is uh, much better, I think, than um, than just giving tips, and it keeps their pride intact. Thinking about it, I was reminded of this uh, during the walkout from the Taj earlier in the day. A small boy selling postcards was dogging me all the way out of the complex. He was asking for a hundred rupees for his postcards. Now, I never buy postcards. Most of the time, I've just shot a bunch of images that I'll use to remember the experience. Uh, So I simply don't need them. And I made a mistake, though, of saying, look, I don't want your cards, but here's 20 rupees. And basically, um, the meaning of that is just leave me alone. With this, though, the boy pulled a funny face and looked as though he'd been insulted and shook his head. I realized that I had indeed insulted him. I'd made a mistake uh, that I was, you know, I was trying pretty much hard all the way through my life to sort of not make decisions or do something based on my own set of values and cultural background. Uh, But this was exactly what I'd done right now. I'd made a mistake in this way. This isn't some kind of a a whippersnapper from England or Japan who would have been selling these for some pocket money to buy some sweets or a toy. This was a young businessman uh, with pride in his wares and probably with the responsibility to take home a certain amount of money to feed his family as well. I'd hurt his feelings and insulted him by offering him money, and I felt bad and regretted doing so. Following a profound moment of realisation, though, 
I still didn't need the postcards, so I told him again no and continued to walk back to the electric car to take us back to our car to go to the hotel. After the inlaid marble workshop, um, the guy took us, as I said earlier, to a jewel shop. Now, I'd I'd heard earlier, actually, that this was a sapphire-cutting workshop, um, but it wasn't. It was just a shop selling jewels. Then he asked if we wanted to go to the carpet shop, and again, this earlier, I'd heard that it was a a carpet weaving weaving crafts uh, craftsman sort of workshop place. Uh, but I realised now that they were just going to try to sell me more stuff, uh, more stuff. So I refused. So one more piece of advice based on this is that these guides will um, probably be tied up with a number of shops, or at least get some sort of a backhander later. And they'll just try to take you around to a number of them. If you don't want to buy anything or you don't want to spend time looking, then just refuse from the start. I didn't realize what was going on at first. As I heard uh, you know, that we were going to visit a craftsman's workshop, I was excited about the fact that I'd probably be able to get uh, some environmental portraits. But I'm uncomfortable with being pressured into buying things. Um, and you know, I'm sure that had I not found something that I generally did like, I would have been uh, very uncomfortable trying to get out of this place without doing so. So unless you're prepared to put your foot down and get past the hard sell, I suggest you just don't visit. So as I said, the original plan was to do some street photography here, but it turns out that Agra doesn't really have a market area like most towns. At least that's what the guide told me, and a drive around in the car seemed to reinforce this. As it was going to take five hours to get back to Delhi, and it was almost lunchtime, I decided to let the guide go and head back. I paid him 1,000 rupees for his services. I know that um, you know he told me earlier that he probably expected more, uh, but I based this price on a number of things. Firstly, he'd gotten up really early to get to the hotel at 5.40am, and he'd uh, been very patient and helpful while I was shooting in the Taj Mahal complex. I was grateful for both of these things. However, he didn't really he wasn't really able to help find any good areas that I could do any street photography and actually seemed to be leading me away from it um as as much as possible. I was also not happy at the way he wanted to take me to all of the shops and buy things. So, although it I was relatively happy at the two places that I did visit and I got some nice portraits from one of them, uh, I just felt that I was being railroaded a little here, and this made me feel uncomfortable, so I thought I'd pay him a good price, but not one that is overly generous. So we started the drive back to Delhi, and as we made progress, I was having difficulty keeping my eyes open. I decided to go uh, to head back early so that we could uh, stop off at a, a few places of interest on the way, and I also wanted to stop the car and shoot at some marketplaces at some point. The fatigue from lack of sleep, though, was really getting to me, and I remember seeing just a few places that would be uh, probably interesting as I, you know, as I I opened my eyes every so often. Uh, probably would have been interesting if I'd been fresh and awake, but I really just couldn't get serious about doing this in my current state. A few hours into the drive, I noticed that the driver was uh, definitely getting tired and feared that he would fall asleep at the wheel. 
I told him that we could stop for a break at any time and he seemed to understand and agree, but he pushed on for another hour or so. And then we stopped at a roadside uh, eatery for lunch at around 2.30pm. It's customary for the driver to eat alone at these sort of places, but I asked him if he'd like to eat with me and he accepted. I ordered some chicken curry and naan and some rice and he ordered some dal. Uh, with you know, the warm, uh, warmth of the afternoon and looking around at people as they pass by, it was kind of nice to just sort of sit and enjoy for a while. About the time I'd stopped eating and uh, was thinking about going back to the car, a camel train trundled past, so I grabbed my camera and got a few shots. One of them that I'd like to look at here is image number 1197. Here we can see the camel pulling a large cart with a white canvas covering, covering the load. I don't know what it is under the canvas, but I figured it was some kind of crop or maybe wool or something. In this shot, I was lucky to get the camel framed in its entirety and the man sitting behind uh, on the cart driving it uh, with very typical dress, uh, the white robes that you can see a lot in India. I zoomed in 220mm with my 70-200 as I was not so interested in getting the load in. I was more interested in portraying the man uh, with the large... Um, cart behind him you could see it from the just from the part that we can see uh, but then also I wanted the man himself to be large enough to be um, to make this shot almost an environmental portrait and I, I wanted to get the camel in as well obviously this seemed to be about the best composition to achieve this as they were walking past though I had to be pretty quick uh, in my thinking one regret is that I wish I'd opened up the aperture to f4 instead of f5.6 that I did shoot this at. I was shooting at uh, ISO 400 and getting um, a shutter speed of one one five hundredth of a second, so I didn't need the extra stop for faster shutter speed, but the f4 would have helped to get the background a little bit more out of focus uh, to allow us to concentrate more on the camel and the driver. I still uh, like the shot though, um, the man is large enough in the frame to be able to make out his expression as he looks back at me uh, photographing him. And for added interest, the you know, I was lucky that the camel actually turned its head slightly and glanced at me um, for a little while too. After this, we continued to drive towards Delhi. Having gotten uh, a few hours broken sleep uh, to this point, I'd asked the driver at lunchtime if we could stop at, um, at some markets that we might drive through. Now, I still don't know if he fully understood me, which is uh, one of the reasons that I, sh I said earlier we should try to find a driver that speaks good English, but he didn't look very happy at the question. I asked him, though, you know, if he thought it was a bad idea, and he just said yes. Uh, the guide had also told me that uh, shooting in marketplaces uh, is a little bit uh, dangerous. He told me to that I would need to keep, uh, well, be careful with my equipment and keep my wallet safe. So I decided to take the driver's advice for now, but I intended to ask, to ask him to stop anyway if I saw something uh, that I really wanted to shoot. The reality is, though, that you know, once I got back to the car, I really just couldn't stay awake for long enough to keep my eyes open uh, for another marketplace or anything else of interest. I wasn't too concerned about my safety. I, I, although I understand that it's, there are going to be dangers, I, 
I really don't feel overly worried about this sort of thing. Um, but I regret really just the fact that I was just so tired for most of the time. So, you know, if I'd known it was going to take five hours to drive out to Agra, as I said, my fault um, for not planning this properly, but I think I would have extended the trip by a day. I would have stayed in Delhi on Friday night rather than making the drive over here and then set off on Saturday morning to arrive early uh, Saturday afternoon and then shoot the Taj on Saturday afternoon until the sunset. Then I would have gone back to the hotel, probably nice and tired from the travelling and the shooting, and then got a great night's sleep on Saturday night. And that would have allowed me to get up all fresh early on Sunday morning and then get over to the Taj Mahal for dawn, shoot the shots that I did shoot, um, but then make my way uh, back to Delhi uh, with enough energy to keep my eyes open for other places uh, to do some street photography and, you know, basically just sort of just being much more fresh and alert and creative, I think, for the for the whole thing. It would have made it a lot better. Had I done this planning better and also if I'd have spent um, a little bit more time, as I say, I'm not sure if it's even possible uh, but spending a little bit more time to get a driver that speaks good English and understands the requirements of a photographer uh, you know, to stop at various places. I think if I'd have got these things right, it would have made it a much more satisfactory excursion. As it was, I visited one more place uh, just outside of Delhi in a town called Merlauli. We'll take a look at two more images from this trip before closing both of which were shot at the Kutub complex and the first image is number 1198. When I arrived here just before 5pm the sky was starting to warm up and the sun went, as the sun went down and it was around this time that I shot the domed roof through these ruins. It's a relatively simple shot but quite effective I think. I was lucky to have a couple of birds sitting on the top of the ruins for added interest, but the dome and the orange sky are the key elements. To the left of this uh, part of the ruins, they, the, the wall actually falls off abruptly, you know, not, not falls off as in something dropping, but uh, there's no wall there, uh, so the framing uh, was quite important. I didn't want light to appear along the left edge of this uh, shot, I wanted to keep the only light area uh, in the bottom of the frame coming through the archway itself. I did some exposure compensation to the tune of minus one stop to make the uh, sky uh, you know, warm and to keep the ruins in silhouette. The aperture was f11 so that the dome would be almost in focus and this gave me a shutter speed of 1 250th of a second at ISO 400. I actually at this point didn't think that the sky was going to get any more colourful so I stopped shooting and took a minute to call home and tell the missus that I was going to be back uh, to Delhi uh, very soon and that everything was fine apart from the fact that I was just really tired that is. As I spoke uh, after maybe a few minutes or so into the conversation the sky did start to become even richer orange and the cloud formation was pretty nice too, so I cut the call short uh, to shoot image number 1199. For this I used the 24mm TSE lens, this time using it correctly, 
as I'd had my moment of embarrassed realisation in the car already, and I was able to correct the perspective for the large tower known as Kutub Minar that we can see almost in the centre of the frame here. Apart from correcting the perspective some, there's not really a lot to say about this image other than I paid attention to where the dome and the ruins came in the frame in relation to the foreground trees, all of which are silhouetted against a really nice sky. I didn't need to exposure compensate here, but this is probably more coincidence than anything else. The TSC lens uh, actually makes us have to compensate exposure without, uh, even without challenging light. So, you know, the it was really just a coincidence. Normally what happens is the camera has a hard time metering through TSE lenses uh, once you start to tilt and shift them. I got this at um, f8 for one hundredth of a second, again at ISO 400, as I was still hand-holding. I actually uh, carted my tripod halfway around the world uh, for the Taj shots and ended up not being able to use it there because of the restrictions. And now I was just too tired to even take uh, my time shooting these scenes, so I was lucky that I got anything really that uh, I could upload and share with you. I headed to the Delhi airport after this, and a few hours later I was on a plane heading for Bangkok. I was on the cancellation list for a morning flight from Bangkok to Tokyo, with a firm booking for 11pm the following night. And there... You know, there needed to be some uh, cancellations for me to get onto the uh, onto the morning flight, though. When I left Tokyo, actually, a few days earlier um, for my business trip uh, that preceded the Taj trip, I was thinking that it would be great if there were no cancellations so that I could spend some time in Bangkok, uh, too, on my way home. I actually, though, you know, when I got to Delhi airport, I have to admit that I was no longer interested in going. I approached the check-in desk, hoping that there'd been a cancellation, and there hadn't. So uh, I was to fly for five hours uh, through the night, and then once again uh, have time to see part of another country. I had a choice of spending the whole day um, from early morning until late at night in the lounge at the airport, uh, catching up on some sleep and email, etc., or leaving the airport and taking a look at Bangkok. I had to decide now, as I would check my luggage all the way through to Tokyo, if I intended uh, you know, to stay in the airport. So I was really tired and just really worn out. But I figured it would be better to leave the airport and regret it, rather than staying in the airport and regretting it even more. I find that, um, you know, the regret following not doing something is much harder to get over than the regret for doing something that didn't go the way we really hoped. So once again, after just four hours of disturbed sleep on a flight, a five-hour flight to Bangkok, I was launched into the city for around seven hours shooting. I might talk about this uh, once I've gone through the rest of my photos, but... I didn't get uh, many good shots at all. The two images uh, from a quick scan through them uh, that I have done are of Buddhist statues. 
I don't think that I'll have enough shots to do a podcast on the trip, though, so I'll just tell you briefly that uh, once I um, got to Bangkok, I again hired a guide to show me around. I visited a number of temples and had a ride on a boat for an hour or so, and then went for lunch. And after lunch, I was once again taken to a few shops by the guide, reaffirming my thoughts that uh, these guys will always try to get you to part with your money in some way. This supports the country though, you know, especially countries that are not so well off, so I I definitely don't want to say that this is a bad thing, but something uh, to be careful of. I had one meal in Bangkok, which uh, was this lunch that I just mentioned, and a few hours later I started to feel pretty ill. I ended up parting with part of the lunch uh, on at the airport and then the rest of it um, on the flight home that night. I ended up uh, not being able to eat anything else on the flight uh, for the rest of the journey home and I arrived back at my Tokyo apartment at 10am on the Monday morning uh, really just totally weak, hardly able to carry my luggage and my camera bag. I slept for eight hours straight until 6pm and then I got up for four hours before sleeping for another eight hours. I still felt a bit off the next day, all all day Tuesday, uh, but then I was fine. I don't know if it was the lunch that made me ill or some of the water that I might have swallowed when splashed by some catfish while on the boat. Either way, it was probably caused more by the fact that I was just too tired to stay fit. Um, I'm sure if I'd have been sleeping properly, I wouldn't have got ill this way, but you never know. Not a great experience, but as they say, what doesn't kill you makes us stronger. So that concludes the three-part travelogue of my brief trip to India in December 2006. I love India and I can't wait to go back at some point. I'll definitely try to make time to do more planning myself next time to avoid getting into the same state as I did this time. I came out out of the experience with some great memories and a fair amount of nice shots and I hope that uh, you've enjoyed me sharing them with you. So not only uh, does this conclude the travelogue but it also concludes the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast for 2006. It's Christmas Eve today and so a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all of you. Thanks for listening throughout this year and I hope that you continue to listen through 2007 and beyond. Thanks too for all of your contributions in the forum and the members gallery. You guys make this uh, site a great place to hang out and I really uh, look forward to spending next year and on into the future with you. So once again, Merry Christmas and I'll speak to you again in the new year. Bye bye. photocastnetwork.com your photography resource in the potosphere photocastnetwork.com